Physical distancing in Virginia will continue until the state meets a number of criteria, including two straight weeks with a declining number of cases. The ability to run large numbers of tests is key to any plan to ease restrictions on businesses and gatherings. To get there, Governor Ralph Northam has put a former Virginia health commissioner in charge of better utilizing how COVID-19 tests are performed in the state. Our job with this working group will be to help ensure that everyone knows how they fit into a coordinated statewide testing plan. It's April 22nd, 2020, and on this edition of the Charlottesville Quarantine Report, a deeper look at testing. Charlottesville City Council meets again, and we look at efforts to house the homeless in Charlottesville during the pandemic. I know in the homeless service system, we definitely are expecting a lot more people to reach out. I'm Sean Tubbs, and thanks for listening in. But first, a few pieces of information before we get back to the public health information we have for you today. The Charlottesville chapter of the National Coalition for Black Women is raising funds to purchase and manufacture 5,000 masks for members of the African-American community. COVID-19 is affecting black communities across the nation harder than others, in part due to underlying health equities and socioeconomic inequities. To contribute or to request a mask, visit the link in the show notes. Another Charlottesville restaurant has opted to close permanently. The owners of the Downtown Grill announced on Monday they would not come back when the quarantine is over in Virginia. The owners are encouraging people to donate to the Charlottesville Restaurant Relief Fund, which provides help to laid off and furloughed workers. The Charlottesville Regional Chamber of Commerce has launched an initiative called Project Rebound, which seeks to help the business community to develop a blueprint for restoring business operations and building economic resiliency in the wake of COVID-19. There will be seven teams that will spend the next month or so getting input in areas ranging from reviving small businesses to rebuilding nonprofit and community organizations. There's more information on the Chamber website and in the show notes. We are nearly six weeks into our collective response to this pandemic. Many of us have done our part to limit the spread of a virus that scientists are working on better understanding. Some people are out of work with no clear indication of when they'll return. Healthcare workers and grocery workers and many other kinds of workers are risking themselves to keep the essential economy afloat. There's still a lot we don't know. But we now have weeks of data that gives us a glimpse into how well the response is going so far. And for this first segment today, we're going to talk a little about the importance of testing and some of the current constraints. I'm recording this on the morning of Wednesday, April 22nd. So far, there are no new numbers released for today. The Virginia Department of Health has begun releasing a lot more breakdowns. But so far today at 10.07, as I record this, uh, it hasn't been posted. And I need to get this one podcasted. Tuesday, April 21st, saw the biggest one-day increase so far in the number of new COVID-19 cases in Virginia, with 640 new cases for a total of 9,630. That's up from 152 confirmed cases on April 21st, shortly before Governor Northam issued a series of emergency orders to limit human contact. There are a vocal minority of Virginians who want the governor to violate the Centers for Disease Control guidelines for lifting social distancing restrictions. Northam is clear that he won't ease the restrictions until public health officials deem it is safe enough to do so. 
The ability to run large numbers of tests is key to any plan to ease restrictions on businesses and gatherings. At the beginning of this pandemic, you'll remember testing capabilities were extremely limited around the nation. We had to use CDC tests and ship every one of them to Atlanta and wait for results. We also didn't have nearly enough of those tests. This has been a problem across the country, as well as here in Virginia. Yesterday, April 21st, the Virginia Department of Health reported that they had conducted tests on 58,354 people. That's an increase of about 1,799 over the day before. On March 22nd, the number tested was 2,790. Since then, the state lab came up with its own in-house testing capabilities, augmented by private labs across the state. The number of tests per day has been rising, but slowly, since the early days. We had experienced a backlog in private labs testing patients from hospitals. Those backlogs are being reduced, partly because the private labs have made hospital samples a priority. It's important to quickly identify positive cases in hospitals because our doctors and nurses have to use PPE with possible COVID patients. If someone tests negative, some of that PPE can be reduced. Still, Northam said the state lab can currently only run about 300 tests per day. Tobacco company Altria has loaned equipment to the state lab that will allow the capacity to increase to 400 tests a day. One of the issues has been getting enough swabs and vials to carry the sample material to the equipment that can analyze them. So between our state lab, the private labs, and the universities and healthcare systems, we are steadily increasing our testing capacity in Virginia. Throughout this process, governors, labs, and healthcare systems have literally been competing for the same supply of reagents, and swabs, just as we have done with PPE because of limited national guidance. Now that there are more resources to fill the gap, Northam and state health officials have created a testing work group to make sure there's consistent policy throughout the Commonwealth. This will be led by state epidemiologist Lillian Peake, as well as Dr. Karen Remley, who served as state health commissioner from 2010 to 2013. Our job with this working group will be to help ensure that everyone knows how they fit into a coordinated statewide testing plan. And by everyone, I mean the universities, the private labs, the state lab, the public health system, the health systems, and equally as important, the doctors and nurses and healthcare providers who care for everyone at their bedside, in their offices, what their roles are. As we've heard, we will need more tests to be able to get back to seeing each other again in person. Virginia Secretary of Health Dan Carey explained Monday that the task force is intended to figure out how to expand testing, but there will continue to be limited resources. What is the right number of tests? To say 7,000 or 9,000 or 12,000 a day without exactly the rationale of how that serves. Total number of tests is not the same thing as deploying a test that, that meets both clinical criteria, it's adding value to the individual patient, or adding value to our full understanding of, of how this uh, outbreak is behaving. So I think we need to make sure as we expand capacity, we also want to make sure we're using it wisely so it adds to our understanding and planning and the impact as we, as the governor in the weeks and months ahead, 
work to open up our, our economy in a safe and effective way. In other changes, Northam said that doctors will be encouraged to test patients deemed to be clinically diagnosed with COVID-19. Virginia needs to have a more accurate count of positive cases. He also said the Centers for Disease Control will be sending in more resources and will allow the state lab to act as the Food and Drug Administration in approving tests. Deputy Commissioner of Health Lori Forlano is in charge of another task force coordinating responses into long-term care facilities, where social distancing is more difficult to achieve. Around two-thirds of outbreaks are happening in these kinds of places. As of yesterday, April 21st, 80 out of 148 outbreaks of COVID-19 were in long-term care facilities. There's been a lot of activity over the weekend and working to shore up our processes and procedures for supporting uh, expanded testing in these facilities. And I'm happy to report that we've already received requests and we're working through deploying those resources and support to, to these facilities. We're also working to uh, think through how we can best support these facilities, uh, particularly the ones who haven't experienced an outbreak yet, in assessing their infection control practices. Uh, it's always good to refresh your practices around infection control and how to control disease transmission. We'll be working with CDC to hopefully offer some virtual assessments or tele assessments on infection control to some facilities. And those facilities that are in the early days of experiencing an outbreak, we hope to deploy uh, staff from the health department to those facilities as resources allow to do on-site infection control assessments. It's a service we provide uh, pretty routinely in, um, on, a, on a regular basis. Other states are already beginning to lift restrictions, despite verifiable information that scientists don't yet know what they need to know to come up with a vaccine. When this novel coronavirus comes into contact with some people, their immune systems go into overload. There are reports of many patients dying of blood clots and of organs being ravaged. We need to understand more if we're going to stop the disease and go back to being able to see each other. One reporter asked if Virginia would have trouble reducing the number of cases if they also increased the number of tests. Northam responded that Virginia has not hit its peak yet. While the numbers have, have slowed down a bit uh, over the weekend, uh, we still had close to 500 new cases each day, which was an increase of around 6%. Uh, a couple days last week, we had a 7% and 8%. So, uh, so hopefully with the, these numbers are trending down, but we certainly haven't reached our peak. Uh, and as we have talked about uh, during a number of these uh, uh, press conferences, um, there are different models. Uh, the one model that we have been following uh, as far as the peak, uh, it still uh, predicts uh, the latter part of this week. So uh, while we're not looking forward to a peak or a surge, uh, we hope that we're reaching that part uh, uh, during this pandemic, and after that, the, the numbers will start to come down and, and we uh, can ease these restrictions and get back to our normal lives. But again, we want to do that responsibly and safely. Today, protests have been organized in Richmond to protest the restrictions that are saving people's lives. Not everyone believes in the science that has led to so many sacrifices in order to slow the spread of this dangerous virus. Northam was asked about this at his last press conference on Monday. I am just as anxious as anybody else out there to, to ease these restrictions. And I, by the way, believe in our First Amendment rights. But I really don't need people protesting 
to encourage me to open up uh, our economy uh, any sooner than we can do safely and and responsibly. And you know, I uh, have a front row seat uh, to uh, some of the protests out here. And and when I looked out uh, at the end of last week at at the protest that was here in Richmond, um, I saw groups of children uh, on blankets uh, that were not only six feet apart, they were probably closer than six inches uh, apart. And I saw uh, a lot of adults, uh, uh, when I say a lot of adults, maybe 50 individuals out there. I don't remember seeing any of them that were protesting that had masks on. And so uh, when we get back to one team, one mission, that we're all trying to you know, get through this together to to really put the, the health crisis behind us and then get our economy uh, back up and running. Uh, these individuals that are out protesting that are not following the guidelines of social distancing and, and wearing uh, facial protection are, are literally putting themselves at risk. They're putting all of us at risk. And, and I guess most importantly, what bothers me, and I've been in the trenches uh, in hospitals, and a lot of us standing beside me have, they're putting our health care providers uh, at risk and their families. And so, uh, you know, I, I, whether it's Republican, Democrat, I, this, this, is not a, this is not the time to play politics, Greg. This is the time for all of us as a nation and certainly as a Commonwealth of Virginia to, to work together uh, and be part of the solution. Northam said the next press conference may be held on Thursday instead of today because of a scheduled protest by people who are not willing to have an open mind. I am willing to accept these sacrifices because I am listening to a lot of voices right now. I only hope that others are willing to do the same thing. You're listening to the Charlottesville Quarantine Report for April 22, 2020. In a moment, we're going to hear from Charlottesville City Councilors. But during this break, let's hear this plug from City Councilor Michael Payne. For anyone in the community who's watching this, who is either looking for resources for support or interested in donating, to just check out supportseville.com, which is a website um, that the community has put together that collects a bunch of different local resources as well as ways you can donate. And they're also um, starting an initiative for folks who are receiving um, that $1,200 check if they would like to donate it to community members or nonprofits who are addressing the COVID-19 crisis. That supportseville.com is just a good um, centralized area for resources. That's supportseville.com. Take a look today. Don't forget to see that link as well as other resources mentioned in the program notes. And please tell friends, family, and coworkers about this program. We've got a long way to go. Charlottesville City Council met via Zoom on Monday, April 20th, 2020, for a meeting at which they learned the details of how the city's budgets for both the current fiscal year and the next one will have to be reduced to accommodate revenue shortfalls. I'm going to document that information in another medium or another show. For this segment, I just want to play highlights from statements that each member of council read. Charlottesville Mayor Nakaya Walker explains. We decided to um, each either make a statement or read a prepared statement um, just so that um, we could connect with the community. There are only a few ways 
that we can connect with the community um, and keep the community safe and ourselves safe. And everyone's trying to figure out what that looks like um, during COVID-19. Unfortunately, the system isn't quite right yet. Vice Mayor Sina McGill's comments kept breaking up due to bandwidth issues. This soundbite has been edited to make it more audible. What I would like to share is that I'm very proud of our community for as much as we have come together to work towards supporting each other. And I know that we need to continue doing that. Unfortunately, City Councilor Snook also had audio issues, but things got better as he continued to speak. We know that there were roughly 40 people in the city of Charlottesville who have uh, come down with COVID-19, according to the latest data from the the health department. Uh, We don't have control over what's happening nationally. We don't have control over what's probably going to be the most important decision, the thing that's going to most directly affect our financial uh, well-being, and that's whether the university reopens physically uh, in August. Snook, Payne, and McGill were all elected in November and have only been in office for four months. The pandemic restricts their ability to put their stamp on city government. We, we're going to have an opportunity or a problem, depending on your perspective, to rethink a lot of things that we've been doing over the, the last few years, and we will end up making different decisions this year, and that's That's going to be stressful for everybody. City Councilor Heather Hill is in her third year, as is Mayor Walker. Councilor Hill echoes McGill's comments about the community coming together and said the budget was her major concern at the moment. She also said council is made up of five different kinds of people. Um, Each of us kind of has different formats by which we communicate with the community. And if you feel like you need to hear more from us, we're certainly open to that. I know that some of us are more comfortable in social media, Um, I certainly try to keep up with um, the emails that are coming and going and try to be responsive to that. And so um, I think that each of us is trying to find our way to to communicate out to different members of the community. Councillor Michael Payne went next and said he supported and applauded the city's decisions to suspend utility shutoffs and public housing eviction proceedings. Certainly for ourselves and I think everyone in the community, this is a time of a lot of uncertainty, um, a lot of fear. And, you know, we are talking with phone calls, texts, emails, social media every day with community members who um, are facing crises and concerns about both the public health crisis aspect of this, but as well as the economic crisis that it has created. Um, You know, there's not a single individual business or nonprofit in our community who has not already been um, affected by this pandemic. And that's something which, you know, we we are deeply aware of and we're committed to doing everything that we have the resources and legal authority to do to try to address that. Charlottesville Mayor Walker went next. You heard her on this program way back in the first episode. She's kept on going with her Facebook Live presentations, but this message was from the virtual dais. Walker also thanked the community, but wants people to look ahead to the future while looking back with a critical eye. I think what I should spend my time on is that hoping that we all understand that we have created a pretty um, unequal and unjust society. And we don't want to learn the lessons that I think we'll learn with COVID-19 if we don't respond to this differently, that um, we all need each other, you know, to get through this. And we won't make it through this without one another. 
What is most important when you think about unequal societies and unjust societies is that there are usually people that are disregarded as those who um, lack the ability to even contribute. And um, what we are learning and what I am very um, proud of is the effort that the community and staff um, have made to ensure that people who normally we don't see, um, that we see and that we make sure that their needs are met. And as long as we continue that path where we put people um, first, and we know that there will be great economic um, consequences. Um, and in a society that's built the way that ours is, there's no other way for you know, um, it to happen. Like that lesson um, will be learned. But every decision that we make today will determine what our recovery looks like, like how we come out of this. And we can make those decisions off the backs of other people, or we can make those decisions and uplift and care for um, each and every one um, of us. And I just hope that we're making those decisions um, where when we get to the end of this, that we can look back and say, because we did that in a way that was full of grace and compassion, that we're in a much better place today. We'll hear more from City Council in the future. For now, I want to use the rest of this show to talk a little bit about what's happening to help house the homeless at this time. Last month, Council waived a condition in the special use permit that turned a church into the Haven back in 2007. Currently, the sanctuary at the Haven, which is a beautiful you know, space that's used for many different purposes, um, is currently being used as a women's shelter right now. Um, so, yeah, there's about 10 women that sleep there every night. That's Anthony Haro, the executive director of the Thomas Jefferson Coalition for the Homeless. I spoke with him Monday afternoon to find out what his agency has been up to and what they need. Over the winter months, many homeless people shelter overnight in churches through a program called Pacham, People and Congregations Engaged in Ministry. The end of the season coincided with the beginning of the pandemic. Some of the churches had ex- that, that Pacham partners with had expressed concern about COVID, a lot of churches were closing down their public spaces. Um, and a lot of church volunteers, frankly, were older and, you know, were in a high-risk category. And so um, slowly it became kind of clear that that the remaining churches um, to finish out the season might not be the right fit, even if they agreed to, you know, continue sheltering. And so we, we started trying to figure out an alternative space Haro said, when churches closed, they closed fast. There was also a concern that many churches did not have enough space to allow for keeping people six feet apart to comply with social distancing guidelines. Haro said planning was done to find a solution, part of which involved opening the haven to overnight residents for the first time. Thankfully, the the city came through as a, as a great partner there. We're using the key rec center right now um, down the street from the haven uh, as the shelter for men. Generally, how many men are at the at the key rec center? There are about twenty five to thirty, and about ten women in, at the at the Haven. What role is the state government playing right now in addressing the issue and getting resources out there? The state governor, you know, the rele- governor released um, can't remember the exact amount, but maybe it was five point two million or something like that recently to address this issue. Um, and so we were, we received about $34,000 locally 
to to address our, our response to COVID, which helped us to pay for um, a floor of rooms at a local hotel to use as a quarantine isolation um, uh, floor for, for anybody who's homeless, who has COVID-19, has tested positive, or who has awaiting results, um, which is a best practice that we that we were able to get in place. Um, and while to date, we, no one in the homeless population that we're aware of has tested positive for COVID, we have that there as a backup in case someone needs, you know, someone needs it because basically we don't obviously want someone who's tested positive to go back to a congregate sleeping situation. The other crisis that's happening right now, in addition to the public health crisis, is we're entering into a period where there are a lot of people out of work. A lot of housing sensitive yeah. people um, are really going to be threatening, you know, where are they going to go in the future? Um, but before we get to that, though, you know, can you just talk about what efforts have been pre-COVID-19 to fight homelessness uh, by the Thomas Jefferson Coalition? Sure. Yeah. Remember those times before COVID? Wow. <laughs> they seem fantastical at this point. Um, so, yeah, we're, you know, Thomas Jefferson Area Coalition for the Homeless, our, our mission and our vision for the community is to um, make homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. And so we do that through a number of different efforts um, across a continuum or a spectrum of services from street outreach to engage people living outside to build relationships with those folks and connect them with services and housing to emergency shelter, um, to transitional housing, and to housing programs like rapid rehousing and permanent supportive housing. Um, and so what we try to do is identify people quickly as best we can when they become homeless and then get them wrapped up in you know immediate needs. So shelter obviously is the first immediate need we try to fill. And then immediately from there, we, we go, we try to address the housing issue as best we can. And we have a couple different programs to do that, um, which are still in place today, although they've changed a little bit, but pre COVID, um, you know, essentially there were housing resources to prevent you from ever falling into homelessness or having to stay at a shelter. And those are homelessness prevention. Um, that's homelessness prevention funding. And then if you do fall into homelessness and are staying at a shelter, there's rapid rehousing funding, it's called, which helps pay for like a security deposit. And then it also provides rental assistance and case management for folks, households who are experiencing homelessness. And that can last up to two, uh, 24 months. But we um, were pre-COVID uh, prioritizing that funding because it's certainly limited to the most vulnerable households in our in our community who are experiencing homelessness. Um, those those folks who are at the highest risk of dying on the streets. That, that's who we prioritize that um, those housing resources and case management for. And then the the other type of housing assistance is permanent supportive housing, which is similar to rapid rehousing, but it's indefinite. So it's it's you know rental assistance and um, more intensive case management that's that's basically indefinite and so there's no end date to it someone can stay in that program for the rest of their lives um or they can also you know quote unquote graduate or, or move on um if they if they you know get income or or get another housing um voucher in the community so with so many people out of work right now and potentially going to be out of work you know are you looking ahead to the next few months at this point or and uh, like, are those conversations that are being had amongst our social services agencies? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's something that we are, you know, many of us in the kind of housing and nonprofit support world 
are thinking about and trying to best to prepare for while still addressing immediate needs. So it's it's difficult. Um, but I know in the homeless service system, we definitely are expecting a lot more people to um, to reach out. Particularly, what we're expecting is um, homeless prevention assistance. You know, there's been a moratorium on evictions, but that has to end at some point, and these stimulus checks can only go so far. So there's going to be a point where people are still going to be out of work and can't pay the rent and are going to come to, you know, look for help to stay in their units. And the homeless service system cannot meet that whole demand. We already can't meet that demand pre-COVID. Um, and so what we do is we prioritize carefully the homeless prevention assistance for those households who we are able to figure out are the most likely to fall into homelessness. And, you know, so we're going to continue to do that. Uh, and what we're going to look to partners at the city and the county to kind of step up and help help other uh, folks who are in a similar situation, because we're not going to be able to meet the full, you know, full demand, just the homeless system of care on its own. And right now there are, you know, we haven't seen any uh, hints of additional funding coming our way specifically to address homeless prevention. Um, but we'll see. I know that there are those some of those discussions at the state level, but something that we've done is kind of, we've kind of held back some prevention funding, not really held it back, but we are ready to use it, let's just say, because we, we are expecting an influx, um, you know, later on, late summer timeframe. We still do have this crisis. You know, we don't know exactly how yeah. long the lockdown will happen. We're still taking it one day at a time. But the reason I asked the question, though, is because in addition to the rental assistance and the finding of new landlords, what are the types of things that you think the average person could do right now to help anticipating that wave that might be coming in the future of people who are becoming homeless? So, yeah, it's a great question. I know it's on a lot of people's minds. A lot of people have reached out to me about that. And, um, you know, one thing is that we always, and especially now, you know, are in need of monetary support. Um, if if people listening to this are in a financial position um, where they feel the ability to give, because I know this this has put everybody in a in a tough space financially, but if you know, and and if someone feels comfortable doing so, obviously, then that's a great way to help. Um, Stimulus checks, you know, went out not too long ago for for most folks. And again, if you're in a position where some of that can be given back to the community, that's a great way to give back. That's Anthony Haro, executive director of the Thomas Jefferson Coalition for the Homeless. And that's it for this installment of the Charlottesville Quarantine Report. Every time there is something new to digest, we'll bring you a new show. The point of this program is to provide another place to get good information about what we're up against, both in terms of the public health crisis and the economic and social one that will change our community. I'm Sean Tubbs, and as always, I thank you for listening.